Namaskaram. Um, today, the, um, the first topic I wish to talk about before answering other questions is how do grace, love and effort work together, complementing each other? The context is that in a recent video of mine, the video is, uh, the title of the video is How to Yield to Grace to Have Love to be Pulled Inward Constantly. That title was an attempt to um, combine together the two principal questions I was asked in that video. That is, that is one of the videos where Gita was asking me a series of questions. The two questions she asked in two principal questions she asked in that video were how does one self sorry how does one open oneself up to grace so as to be pull, pulled inward constantly and how can one develop sufficient love to turn within so that one prioritizes self attention over everything else uh, that video was was posted a few days ago on my YouTube channel, and someone wrote a comment on it. So the, the, I will answer what the various uh, questions that I was asked in that comment. Um, I'll read the comment, and as I come to, and I'll comment and and I'll answer bit by bit as I as I read through it. That is, the comment begins. It still feels like there is something missing because where does the desire or love to practice come from? I understand the love grows in relation to how much we practice, but what can we do to increase our practice? It's so easy not to bother and spend all day busy turning outwards. Yes, the, the nature of ego is to always go outwards. As Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, ego is a formless demon or phantom. It, 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 it is formless because it has got no form of its own. So it, it has no independent existence of its own. It derives its reality, its seeming reality, from the reality of ourself. In other words, it derives its, uh, its existence, its seeming existence and its seeming awareness from the real existence and awareness of ourself. That is what we actually are, is Satchit. Satchit means pure being and pure awareness. Not two things. Pure being is pure awareness. Pure awareness is pure being. That is called Satchit. Sat meaning being and Chit meaning awareness. So they are one and the same. That is what we actually are. That such it is what is shining within us as our awareness of our own being, I am. That is what we actually are. But now we have risen as ego. As ego, we, we don't cease to be aware I am, but instead of being aware of ourselves as just I am, we are now aware of ourselves as I am this body, I am this person, I'm such and such a person. So uh, that, that adjunct mixed awareness is what is called ego. Uh, the pure awareness is what we actually are. The same awareness 
seemingly mixed and conflated with adjuncts is what is called ego. Um, the, and uh, what Bhagavan says about the ego in verse 25 of Uludhanapadu is uh, urupatriyundam, grasping form, it comes into existence. Urupatri nikkum, grasping form, it stands or endures. Urupatri undu mikaongum, grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Uh, Uruvitu urupatram, leaving form, it grasps form. So the very nature of ego is to grasp form. Since ego is itself a formless uh, demon or phantom or something insubstantial and with no form, whatever forms it grasps are things other than itself. So form here means any object or phenomena, phenomenon of any kind whatsoever. So as ego, we are constantly attending to things other than ourselves. That is what Bhagavan means by grasping form. So the very nature of ego is to be constantly going outwards. So from where can the love to, uh, uh, to go within arise? It cannot arise from ego itself. It cannot arise from ego as ego, because ego, the nature of ego as ego is to go outwards. It can arise only from our real nature, which is such it, and which the nature of such it, it is not only pure being, pure awareness, it is also pure love. That is what we actually are, is pure love. So that love which we actually are, uh, though it doesn't do anything, it is constantly pulling us back within. So the love to, to turn back within comes not from ego, but only from the source of ego, namely that pure love that we actually are. That pure love that we actually are is what is called grace. That is, we we experience that love, that pure love, but we as we actually are have for ourselves as we actually are as grace. What we actually are is Bhagavan and is his grace. That is, Bhagavan and his grace are not two different things. They are both our own real nature, what we actually are. So that love to turn within can come only from grace. But grace is not something other than ourself, it's our own reality. Um, uh, so just to complete, because I was referring to that verse 25, after saying, after explaining that the nature of ego is to, uh, it come, is to constantly grasp form, Grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. So the nature of ego is to constantly grasp form. However, if instead of grasping form, if it tries to grasp itself, what happens? That is what Bhagavan answers in the next sentence, in which he says, Tedinal otum pidicum. That means, Literally, it means if seeking, it takes flight. That means if ego seeks its own reality, if it seeks to know who am I, what it actually is, it will 
take flight. That means it'll run away. Well, it will disappear. Why? Because ego has no reality of its own. We seem to be ego so long as we are attending to anything other than ourself. If we attend to ourself, there's no such thing as ego to be found. So we only seem to be ego when we are not attending to ourselves. When we attend to ourselves, we don't find any such thing as ego. We can il illustrate this with the analogy of the, uh, of, the, of the rope and snake. What is actually there is only a rope. If we don't look at it carefully enough, it seems to be a snake. But even when it seems to be a snake, what it actually is is only a rope. So if you look at the snake carefully enough, what do you see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's only a rope. Likewise, uh, ego and our own real nature, what ego actually is, is only pure awareness. But when we as ego don't look at ourselves carefully enough, we seem to be this so-called ego, this uh, false awareness, I am this person. And because we're aware of ourselves as a person, as a body, we're consequently aware of other things. So but, uh, uh, sometimes when people uh, used to ask Bhagavan, what is the cause of the rising of ego? Obviously, there cannot be any cause, but Bhagavan often used to say, ego rises because of abhichara. Abhichara means non-investigation. In other words, because we we seem to be ego only because we haven't investigated ourselves. That's not that is Bhagavan said that for a practical reason, because obviously the abhichara, the non-investigation, is only for it's only ego that is not attending to itself. So not attending to itself cannot be the cause for the rising of ego, but the very nature of ego is to not attend to itself. That's and and so it seems to have arisen. If if instead of not attending to ourselves, in other words, instead of attending to things other than ourselves, we turn our attention back on ourselves. In other words, instead of grasping form, if we try to grasp ourselves, there's no such thing as ego to be found. So by turning our attention back to ourselves, ego subsides and dissolves into its source. That's what Bhagavan means by autumpidicum. It takes flight, it runs away. So, um, so ego will subside and disappear only by attending to itself. But in order to attend to itself, it needs to have great love because in order to attend to itself, it needs to give up everything. It needs to give up everything else and it also needs to give up itself, its own identity as ego. So that it will be willing to do so only if it has great love to know and to be what it actually is. That love doesn't, that love is quite contrary to the nature of ego. So it doesn't come from ego as ego. It comes from the reality of ego, which is the such it, the, the pure awareness I am, which is what we actually are. Um, so that's the answer to the question. Uh, where does the desire or love to practice come from? It comes only from within. Um, and, and then I'll continue reading the question and answering bit by bit. The, the next thing that person said, plus, 
if our love to turn inwards is grace, then it feels like we can't do anything to speed up the process. It will happen when it happens. Even the desire to practice feels like it will happen only when it is meant to happen. If we think of our, of our love to turn within and grace as two separate things, then such a question may arise. But actually, I, as Bhagavan often said, grace is not something but outside ourselves. It's not something that is going to descend from heaven and fall on our head. Grace is ever shiny in our heart as our own being, I am. So how does grace work? Grace isn't something external to us that's working on us. It's something internal. It's what we actually are. So it works in us and through us. So how does grace draw our attention back within by giving us the love to turn within? So the liking to turn within is the manifestation of grace in our own heart. So but grace and the love to turn within are not two different things. That is, grace manifests in, in our heart in the form of the love to turn within. Does that mean that we, we can leave everything to grace and we don't have to do anything? No, we have a responsibility because as ego, our nature is to go outwards. So long as we are going outwards, we are going con we are going contrary to grace grace is trying to pull us within we are enthusiastically rushing outwards so in order to be pulled inwards by grace by that love to know and to be what we actually are we need to yield ourselves to it so effort is necessary on our part if we make no effort as as uh, the person who asked this question said in the previous sentence, it's so easy to not bother and spend all day being busy turning outwards. Yes, that is the nature of ego. If ego is left to its own devices, it will till all eternity it will be going outwards. But now, by grace, we have this interest to turn within, this liking to turn within has risen in our heart. In practice, this liking may not be very strong, as we all find out when we try to turn within. When we try to turn within, we find we with so much enthusiasm, we're jumping outwards again and again and again. That is because this love is at present just in a seed form. We have to cultivate that, we have to nurture that seed in order to allow it to grow into a plant. So Though grace, grace is always doing our, its part, we have to yield ourselves to grace by trying to turn within. By trying to turn within, we are thereby nourishing and feeding that, um, that seed of love that had been planted in our heart by grace, so that love grows. So grace, love, and effort are not three separate things. Grace. Grace is the reality. Grace is what we actually are. That manifests in us as the love to turn within. The love to turn within manifests in the form of the effort we make to turn within. So these are not three separate things. So effort on our part is necessary. In the 12th paragraph of Nana, 
Bhagavan gives us a very great assurance. Um, I'll just read what, what he says in this paragraph. There are just three sentences in this uh, paragraph. Um, in the first sentence, he says, Kadavalum guruvum unmail verala. That means God and Guru are in truth not different. God and Guru are both our own real nature. So they're nothing, they're not different from each other, they're not different from ourselves. They are what we actually are. And then he goes on to say, just as what has been caught in the jaws of a tiger will not return. That means it will not escape. It will not come out of the jaws. Once it's caught in the jaws of a tiger, it's never going to come out again. It's never going to escape. So those who have been caught in the look or glance of Guru's grace will never be forsaken, but will surely be saved by him. He says that very um, very forcibly in Tamil. He says, Abaral Rakshika Padavare Andri Orukalam Kaivida Padar. That is, he will he will certainly um, uh, save, protect and save them, and he will never forsake them. But then the third sentence, he adds an important caveat, an important proviso. Eninum guru kartya varipadi tabaradu nadakavendam. That means, uh, nevertheless, it is necessary to walk unfailingly in accordance with the path that Guru has shown. So the path that Bhagavan, who is our own real nature, has shown us is this path of self-investigation and self-surrender. He will certainly save us, but we have to play our little part by trying to turn within. Because by trying to turn within, the effort we make to turn within is our yielding ourselves to his grace. So his grace, as Bhagavan often used to say, Grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Why, why, why did Bhagavan say that? Because it is grace that draws us to this path. It is grace that leads us along this path, motivates us to persevere in following this path. And finally, it is grace that will swallow us, because grace is Bhagavan himself. Bhagavan and his grace are not two different things. And so grace is Bhagavan himself, Grace is what we actually are. So in the end, grace alone will remain. This is why in the final verse of Anmavide, Bhagavan says, Arulam Veiname. That means grace is also necessary. Uh, Ambu Puname, have love. So uh, that is, we yield ourselves to grace to the extent to which we have love to turn within. And to the extent to which we have love to turn within, we will make effort to turn within. So all these, these three, grace, love, and effort, they ultimately, they are one and the same thing. That is, as I said, it's grace that manifests in the form of the love to turn within, and the love to turn within manifests in the form of the effort to turn within. So these all complement each other. Um, so, I, I will continue reading. Um, so, as I said, this person had written, um, it feels like we cannot do anything to speed up the process. Yes, we can do something to speed up the process by trying to turn within more, making the effort to turn within. That is what we do to speed up the process. Uh, 
And then they, they went on to say, it will happen when it happens. Even the desire to practice feels like it will happen when it's meant to happen. When we say like that, it's as if we have no role to play. We do have a role to play. It's we who must have love to turn within. It's we who must make effort to turn within. So we shouldn't just think, oh, it will happen when it happens. In the meanwhile, let me just carry on with my life as usual. So long as we carry on with our life as usual, it will not happen. It will happen when we yield ourselves to grace by uh, making the effort to turn within. Grace is giving us that liking to turn within, but we have so many other likings also. We've got so much liking to go outwards. Instead of yielding to the liking to go outwards, the liking to go outwards is what is called Vishaya Vasanas, we need to yield to grace, which is the liking to go back within. Then only it will happen. Um, and then the next, then the, the the person goes on to say, where does the desire, the love to practice come from? That I've already answered. That can that cannot come from ego. It can only come from our real nature, from grace. That is. And then they they ask, uh, do we have to somehow use our ego to try and consciously make an effort to practice? Yes, we, we have absolutely. We have to. We we have we as e, it's not exactly using our ego. We as ego have to make effort to try to turn within, and then they go and say, uh, and then as we do practice more, then the love from uh, grace increases, and our love to go inwards increases. Yes. Yes, but more the more we practice, the more we are yielding ourselves to grace. So the more the grace, but the, the love but is the manifestation of grace in our heart, um we will experience that love increasing. That is, the more we yield to grace, the more we will experience the influence of grace. And the influence of grace is the love to turn within. Um and then they go on to say. There seems to be some real fight to get started first, before our love to go inwards increases. It's a bit like when you know you need to exercise, but have no interest to exercise, but you have to force yourself to get started. Then once you get started, you find you quite like it and it gets easier. Yes, absolutely. It, it is necessary, even if we don't, even if we, when we start on this path, we all have much stronger inclination to go outwards than we have inclination to go inwards. So yes, we're like a person who 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 has hasn't been exercising and therefore become very unfit. In order to start exercising, it takes a great effort in such a situation. But the more you make that effort to exercise, the more you begin to find actually exercising is quite good. I feel good when I exercise. In exactly the same way, the more we turn within, the more we will find that we actually quite like turning within. It's actually very pleasant to turn our attention within, um, back towards ourselves. So effort is necessary. Effort is necessary not at the beginning. Effort is necessary from the beginning to the very end, because the nature of ego is to go outwards. So we are, when we are trying to turn within, 
we are going against the nature of ourself as ego. But by going against the nature of ourself as ego, we are returning to our real nature, which is just to always uh, eternally just be as we actually are. Be as we actually are and know nothing other than ourselves. That is our real nature. So we we are by by making the effort to turn within, we are renouncing our ego nature and reclaiming our real nature, so to speak. Um and then they go on to say that effort and in the fight to get started uh, with exercising uh, isn't usually easy. You tend to put it off, find excuses, and it can be a real fight to get started. Is it like that uh, for some of us when it comes to going inwards? It is not like that just for some of us. It is like that for all of us. Effort is necessary. This, this will not come to us unless we are willing to make the effort to because the very nature of the mind is to be constantly flowing outwards it requires effort to go within we are so to speak swimming against the current the current of the mind is to constantly go outwards taking interest in so many things in the world we are swimming against by trying to turn within we are swimming against that outward going current of the mind so it requires effort if we, we no one can turn within without making effort. Effort is absolutely essential, but that effort is driven by love. So the more we try to turn within, the stronger that love becomes. The stronger the love becomes, becomes the more we will like to turn within. So it's an it's an it's a snowballing process. But that doesn't mean it ever becomes easy. The fight continues to the very end because as ego, we are always attached to things other than ourselves. We are attached to this body that we take to be ourselves. So as ego, we will always be putting up resistance to going within. And though as we go deeper and as we progress in this path, going deeper and deeper within, ego will become weaker and weaker. Ego is like a like a a tiger if if a, if a, if some um people are hunting a tiger in old days before they had um before they had now we have all guns and things but in both in old days they would have been hunting tiger with with uh, spears and sticks and uh, knives and so on so they, it, 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 a group of people are trying to um to, to hunt that tiger uh, as the as it goes on the tiger gets weaker and weaker as it gets more and more wounded it loses strength and finally it's cornered it's surrounded by people so it's very weak but it's it, and it's surrounded but it's it's then fighting for its very life so in spite of it being much weakened it will fight back more ferociously than ever Likewise is ego. The weaker ego gets, the more ferociously it will fight back. So in this path, effort is necessary to the very end. We can't just give up and um, and say, oh, now uh, let it all happen. No, we have to continue making effort until the one who makes effort is completely swallowed by grace. That one who makes effort is ourself as ego. So as ego, we need to, effort is absolutely necessary. Um, 
though the love to go within is increasing, the resistance will also be like the, the, the resistance to go within coming from ego is like that uh, wounded tiger is fighting back more ferociously for its very existence. So we have to be ready to make continue making effort till the very end. This is what Bhagavan described as the warfare of grace. In um, in Akshramlai, in one verse in Akshramlai, I can't remember the number, um, yes, yeah, 74 of Akshramlai, Bhagavan sings, Pokum varubumil poduveli inilaro pora tanka taronachala. That means, show me the warfare of grace uh, in, uh, in the common space, in the open space in which there's no coming and going. That open, that poduveli, the open space, is in the space of our own heart. It's in our own heart that this warfare of grace has to take place. That warfare of grace is the battle between the love to turn within, which is given to us by grace, and the nature of ego, which is to constantly go outwards under the sway of its Vishaya Vasanas. So it's a, a battle between, on the one hand, the Satvasana. Satvasana means the, the inclination just to, 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 the inclination to cling to our being, and thereby be as we actually are. That is, uh, uh, one way of describing the love to turn within, which is grace working in our heart. So the satvasana is grace working in our heart. All the other vasanas, the vasanas go outwards, are ego's vasanas. So this battle has to go on in our heart. That's why Bhagavan show, said, show me that battle, show me that warfare. Because the warfare has to go on till the very end. Um, so when he says, show me the warfare, he implies, show me the warfare up to its very conclusion. The conclusion of that warfare is the annihilation of ego, which is victory for grace. Um, but uh, so we all need to experience that warfare going on in our own heart. We need to be ready to put up a fight, as this person says. Um, Uh, uh, then they go on to say, um, you, you know it's something you need to do, practice, but your desire to go inwards is so strong. I think she meant it's so weak or isn't so strong. It's such a huge effort and you constantly put it, put it off and are busy going outwards. Do we have to somehow find the fight to uh, make a start, and is there any ways or suggestions we can make that easier for ourselves? Yes, we all have to find the, the fight within ourselves. That is, we need to find the willingness to, to persevere in making the effort to go within. And is there any way or suggestion we can make that easier for ourselves? The only way to make it easier for ourselves is by patient and persistent practice. So, in order to support us in this battle, when we when our enthusiasm to go within gets weaker, it is very helpful to read and think about Bhagavan's teachings. The more we keep our mind dwelling on his teachings, the more his teachings will be constantly encouraging us to turn within. Uh, 
This is why the spiritual path is said to be in Advaita. It is said the spiritual path consists of sravana, manana, nidityasana. Sravana literally means hearing, but in effect it means uh, reading or studying or coming to know about Guru's teachings. Manana means thinking deeply about it, to try to understand it, try to make sense of it, try to understand the deep implication of Bhagavan. We need to understand not only the meaning of Bhagavan's words, but also the implication. So that requires us to think deeply about these things. That's called manana. And nidityasana means deep contemplation. That is the actual practice of self-investigation. So what is all important is the actual practice, but to support us in this practice, constantly keeping our mind dwelling on Bhagavan's teachings, constantly referring back to his teachings, thinking about his teachings, that will help us a great deal in this path because it will encourage us, motivate us to go more and more within. And the more we go within, the more clearly we will understand Bhagavan's teaching. Because by going within, we are returning to the source of all clarity, which is our own heart. So the more we, by turning within and clinging to self-attentiveness, we are, so to speak, bathing in clarity. So the mind is being purified and clarified. So the more the mind becomes purified and clarified, the more clearly we will understand what we read, when we read Bhagavan's teaching, we'll understand more clearly. We'll see fresh depth of meaning and depth of implication in Bhagavan's words. So his teachings will become clearer and clearer to us the more we go deep in this practice. The more his teachings become clear to us, the more they will encourage us to turn within. So this is this the if we want to make it easier to go within, the, the Great support for us is Bhagavan's teaching. So by doing sravana, studying his teaching, and manana, thinking deeply about them, that helps us a lot in this, in turning within. But what is all important is the practice. The sravana and manana are useful only to the extent to which they, they encourage us to turn, uh, to turn within, to make the effort, to, to do the practice. Um, and then the person, sorry, it's a long comment this person wrote, but there's good points in or they're useful points to be answered. Then they go on to say, because when it's such an effort, uh, like someone who wants to exercise but doesn't really have the desire to do so, then when they try, it can be very difficult to sustain. Uh, they may try one day, but then not bother for a few days or weeks and then try again. Yes, that is the nature of it. That is why sravana and manana is so helpful. Because whenever our enthusiasm to practice wanes, we go back to Bhagavan's teachings and his teachings will encourage us to try again and again and again and again. So the sravana and manana are a great aid to the practice. Um, and then they go on to say, I think it was the lady who wrote this, but I'm not sure. That's why sometimes I say they, sometimes I say she. I think it was a she. Uh, it can feel quite hopeless uh, when it doesn't come easily. It doesn't come easily to anyone. That is, Bhagavan has said, this path is, of all paths, this is the easiest of all paths. That is true. It is 
there's nothing easier than attending to ourselves. But it seems difficult to us because we have, because of the lack of love uh, or our insufficient love to turn within. We have more liking to go outward than we have to go within. So it seems difficult. So for everyone, it doesn't, it's true to say, it does, though it is easy, it doesn't come easily or naturally. Um, that is true. That's why effort is necessary. We are swimming. It, swimming against the current is not easy. It's much easier to allow oneself to be swept away by the current. So the current of the mind is to go outwards. It's much easier for us. It seems much easier for us to allow the mind to go outwards and do whatever it wants to do. But if we are to follow this path Bhagavan has uh, taught us and to achieve, attain the infinite happiness that is our own real nature, effort is necessary. Patient, persistent practice is necessary. And only by practice will the strength come to, to persevere more and more in the practice. That's what Bhagavan says in the sixth paragraph of Nana, after describing how whenever the mind goes outwards after any thoughts, we need to turn it back within, we need to investigate to whom do these thoughts appear. That means we need to turn our attention away from the thoughts, away from whatever appears, back towards ourselves, the one to whom it appears. So after describing how we must persevere in that practice, Bhagavan says, Ipidi paraka paraka manatuku tan pirapidiptil tangi nikkam shakti adikadi kindradu. That means um, by practicing and practicing in this way, uh, for the mind, the strength to uh, remain firmly established in its birthplace increases. So the only way to get more love, that strength that he's talking about there, that that shakti, that power, is the power of love. And that is cultivated by practice. So practice is absolutely essential. However difficult it may seem to be, we should have faith in Bhagavan's words. What it is, though it may seem difficult, it is actually very easy. But we need to make effort, we need to persevere. Um, then uh, the person goes on to ask, so what can we do to overcome our laziness, our strong desire to go outwards to, uh, in order to get us started and to be able to sustain some kind of practice? Well, the only way to sustain the practice is to practice. But, but as I said, but we can be helped in this practice, we can be encouraged in this practice by constantly keeping our mind dwelling on Bhagavan's teachings. Because if we think about Bhagavan's teachings, they will always be encouraging us to try more and more to turn within. Um, and then the person goes on, any tips, because it feels like a battle. Yes, it is a battle, and the tip is to persevere in trying and to Draw support from Bhagavan's teachings by think, draw support from reading and thinking about Bhagavan's teachings. Um, and then they go on to ask, does the desire to even practice only come from grace or does it actually have to come from ego? That it comes from grace, but ego needs to play it. We as ego need to play our part by yielding ourselves to that grace. That is, we have so many likings. The, 
so many inclinations. The technical term used by Bhagavan is vasanas. Vasanas means inclinations. Vasanas are us seeds that give rise to likes and dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. That is, if we allow ourselves to be swayed by our inclinations, those inclinations will develop into likings, and the likings will develop into desires. And desires will, if you have desire, you'll also have fear. So all these, it's all the sprouting of these vasanas. So we, we, have, we have, as ego, our vasanas to go outwards are very strong. So we need to yield ourselves to the inclination to go within, the vasana to go within, the sat vasana, but that has been planted in our heart by his grace, by Bhagavan. Bhagavan's grace has planted this inclination to go within in our heart. Though this inclination may be very weak, this inclination can overcome all inclinations if we yield ourselves to it by trying more and more to go within. Um, so the, the desire to practice comes only from grace, but that doesn't mean that ego can just, oh, let grace do it, I can just carry on with my life going outwards as usual. No, we, as ego, we need to yield ourselves to a grace by trying to turn within. Um, then they go on to say, I understand once we get going and we're able to sustain some regular practice, then our love will increase. But to get going and get a regular practice isn't easy. Um, well, yes, the more we, the more we make effort to go within, the more we will be driven to continue making effort, but we shouldn't think it's going to become easy. It's going to, the struggle will continue to the end because the very nature of ego is to go outwards. But we, 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 wherever we stand on the path, we've got to make effort. And so we don't know how near or how far we are from our goal at present, but we are where we are. From where we are, we need to start the journey. The journey, we know the direction we have to travel in, going back within. How far we have to travel, in other words, how, of course, go, we, they, there's not any, literally any distance, because what, what we are traveling towards is back towards ourself, our own real nature. So there's no distance between ourselves and our real nature, no literal distance, but there's a metaphorical distance in the sense that we need to practice for as long as it takes to, uh, strengthen our satvasana and weaken all our vishaya vasanas. How long that will take depends on how, how far we progress so far and how much effort we are willing to make from here onwards. So um, we all have to, wherever we may be on the path, we just have to persevere in making effort to turn within as much as we can. Um, and then uh, they go on to ask, also, what would you define as a good sustained practice? I think sustained practice means a good sustained practice. Once a day, several times a day, even if it's only for a few minutes or, or even seconds. Bhagavan has made it clear what, we, what is required is constant practice, not just... Um, 20 minutes morning and evening throughout the day we should be trying to turn within we may fail we 
none of us succeed in keeping up the holding on to the self-attentiveness constantly but that is what we need to work towards bhagavan says it in in the 16th paragraph of nana he defines atmavichara saying sadakalamum sadakalamum means always sadakalamum manate atmavil vaitirvatkutan atmavicharam endrupaya that means the name atmavichara refers only to always keeping the mind uh, on oneself that the, the, the start first word of that sentence is sadakalamum which means always constantly all the time um so there he he emphasized the need for constant uh constantly trying to turn within and in the 11th paragraph he gives us a great assurance he says um oruvan tan sarupam adeyam varayil nirantara swarupa smaranaye kaipatruvanayin adu andre podam that means um uh until one attains one's own real nature, uh, if one holds on to, Nirantara uh, means unceasing, Swarupasmarana means self-remembrance, in other words, self-attentiveness, until if we hold on to, uninterrupted self-attentiveness until we attain our own real nature adhu andre podum that alone is sufficient so what we none of us are going to succeed at first in holding on to self-attentiveness constantly but that is what we need to work towards so a good good practice is if we are holding on to self-attentiveness at least to some extent throughout the day that is, there are times when when we are not engaged in other activities, when we may be able to go deeper within. There are times when we seem to be busily engaged in so many other activities, we, it, it, it seems to us that we're not able to go so deeply within. But even in the midst of other activities, we can be maintaining at least, as Bhagavan said, a tenuous current of self-attentiveness. We need to try to hold on to that self-remembrance at least to some degree of self-remembrance throughout the day, whatever else we may be doing. Because whatever we are doing, we are. We couldn't do anything if we didn't exist. And so we, we always exist and we are always aware of our existence as I am. So all we have to do is to remember I am. That is the practice from beginning to end. Remembering I am is what Bhagavan calls fixing the mind on oneself. And that is the de the, his definition of Atma Vichara. Um, so, in practice, we may be succeeding in holding on to self-attentiveness only for a few seconds here and a few seconds there, but we should be trying to do so throughout the day. Then only we will make um, significant, significant progress in this path. But the, what that Bhagavan always emphasized the need for perseverance, persistence. Sometimes when people ask Bhagavan, Bhagavan, is there any sign of progress in this path? Bhagavan said, perseverance is the only sign of progress. Because so long as you're persevering, 
that you, you, why are we persevering? Because we have the love to persevere, and we, that, that love is the driving force on in this path. And the driving force behind that love is grace, which is what has given us that love. So ultimately, it's all the, everything ultimately is done only by grace. But the grace is working through us. So we need to make the the effort. That effort we that we seem to be making is actually grace making that effort th through us. But we can't just complain. Oh, effort isn't making grace isn't making the effort. So what can I do? No, we have to. It's it needs to seem to us that we are making the effort, because the grace that is driving us to make that effort is not something other than ourselves. As Bhagavan said, grace is not something external. It's not something up up in heaven, but we're waiting to fall on our head. Grace is always eternally there in our heart as our own being. So we need to yield ourselves to that by trying more and more to hold on to our being. Um, and then this person finally says, the reason I ask is I do wonder if we don't discuss these things, we could find that we are having high expectations of ourselves and not being realistic, which can lead us to think and feel, but we can't do it because we are struggling. Yes, it's very, in this path, it's very easy for us to become, um, to become uh, discouraged because one thing is guaranteed in this path, we are going to fail numerous times. Our aim is to hold on to self-attentiveness constantly, without a break. So every time we allow our attention to go outwards, that's a failure. So we, 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 will, we will inevitably fail so many times, but our failure should not discourage us. We couldn't fail if we didn't try. And the very fact that we are trying means we are making progress. So long as we are trying, so long as we are persevering in our attempt to turn within, we, Bhagavan has assured us we are making effort. So we should not be discouraged by our failures. Failure is part of the, that is, it is said, the road to success is paved with failure. If you, if you don't fail, that means you've never tried. If you don't try, you'll never succeed. So we have to try and we have to be ready to fail any number of times. So we shouldn't have high expectations of ourselves. We should recognize how, how little love we have to turn within. But the fact that we have so little love should motivate us all the more to try to turn within. Because how, when my present level of love is so weak, how, what hope is there for me? The only hope is I have to continue trying because as I continue trying, that love will increase. So we, we, one thing we should never do in this path is give up. Bhagavan used to say the the biggest obstacle in this path is thinking that it's difficult, thinking that you can't do it. We can all do this, uh, but we need to be willing to try, and we should never be discouraged by our failure. We should. Our failures should just encourage us to keep on trying more and more and more, because the only way to succeed is to persevere in spite of any amount of failure. This is the only way to success. So I I hope this, that is, I thought this was a very good set of questions, because this is really touching upon the very heart of 
what this practice is all about, what we are up against, and uh, the need for the paramount need for grace. Grace is absolutely essential, but grace is not something we are, any of us are lacking. Bhagavan said, grace, <coughs> grace is always there, grace is always present, but we cannot blame God for not being gracious to us. God is so gracious to us, he is ever existing in our heart as our own being, shining in our heart as I am. So he, we can never say he is not gracious to us, he's always making himself available to us. It is we who are not gracious to God, because instead of turning our attention lovingly within to hold on to him in our heart, we are allowing our attention to go outwards. So the grace is absolutely necessary, but grace is guaranteed. Grace has given us the seed of liking. What is necessary on our part is to make use of that, whatever little liking we have, to make effort to turn within. So effort on our part is absolutely essential, because it is only through our own effort that grace is working in our heart. So I felt this question, it encapsulates the whole, what the whole of the practice, what it's all about. So I thought this would be a very useful topic to talk about in this, um, in today's meeting. I'm sorry it's been quite a long, I've been talking for nearly an hour, but I hope that is, um, I hope everyone thinks this is as useful a subject as I, I, I consider it to be. So I'm very grateful to the person who asked these questions, because these are all very, very pertinent questions. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arana Chalaramanaya. So, Chris, are there any questions? We've got a couple of questions. Um, the first question is, uh, Michael, you advocate for veganism and have inspired my partner and I to become committed vegans. However, you've also said to me that activism such as vegan activism is dangerous on the spiritual path. Would you please speak to how activism might be a hindrance on our spiritual path? Activism is about rectifying the world. In this path, our aim is not to rectify the world, our aim is to rectify ourselves, because all the, the, the world is a projection from within ourselves. So all the problems we see in a, the world are a reflection of the problems we see in our own heart. If we turn within and see what we actually are, uh, Bhagavan used to quote something, I think it's from Shankara, Drishtim Jnanamayam Kritva Jagam Brahmamayam Pasyat, or something like that. Turning your, uh, your, your view into your drishti, your outlook, or your view into that of jnana, see the whole world as Brahman. So how can we see the whole world as Brahman without seeing ourselves as Brahman? When we see ourselves as Brahman, we will see that Brahman alone exists. So there's nothing outside ourselves that needs rectifying. If we are trying to rectify the world, we are, we, we are overlooking the fact but the problems in the world are a reflection of the problems within ourselves. Why did the world appear? Because we have risen as ego and are looking outwards. 
how can we solve the problems of the world? By looking within. That is, supposing in a dream you see a war or a famine or a natural disaster, and you see so many people suffering, what is the greatest good you can do to all the people in that dream, all the suffering people in that dream? If you turn your attention back within and wake up from that dream, you've solved the problem for everyone. So, activism is outward-looking. Bhagavan's path is inward-looking. Activism is, the, is, is one form of the path of pravritti. Pravritti means going outwards. Um, the Bhagavan's path is a path of nivritti, turning, withdrawing back within. So, to be vegan, is very good. It's good for ourselves spiritually. It's also good for the world because obviously the animals that would be suffering if we were not vegan, they are relieved of that suffering. But trying to convince others that is not our aim. If someone seeing our vegan lifestyle is genuinely curious and wants to know more, why are we vegan and everything, we can explain the reasons. We can talk about um, the suffering that animals undergo or whatever is an appropriate answer for that person. Not necessarily talking about the spiritual reason for being vegan, because that may not appeal to everyone, but according to what what that person's interests are, we try and present it in a way that will appeal to that person. But we are not to go and start telling people who have no interest in being vegan that they should be vegan. That is futile. If you tell someone something that they don't want to hear, it's, it's of no use. Bhagavan, of his own accord, didn't give any teachings to anyone. If no one had asked Bhagavan any question, he would not have given any teaching at all. Only when people asked, he answered appropriate to the questions they asked. So, if people ask superficial questions, he would give a, an appropriately superficial answer that suited to their question. It would be pushing them a little bit further along this path, but it would be suited to their level. But if people ask deeper questions, he'll give deeper answers. But if Nobody asks him anything, he'll just keep quiet. Why should he? But in his view, the world, there's no problem in the world at all. It's only because, in our view, we are faced with so many problems, we come to him and we ask him questions, and he tells us the solution to all these problems is to turn within. There were people around Bhagavan who were very enthusiastic to uh, reform the world, to rectify the world. Bhagavan used to advise them, he who has created this world, meaning God, knows how to take care of it. Leave it to him. You sort yourself out. So our aim is, not, that's why Bhagavan often used to say, attend to the work for which you've come. We haven't come to this world to rectify it, but even if we try to rectify it, how many people in the past have tried to rectify the world in so many ways? Often, attempts to rectify the world make things even worse. For example, let, let's just take one example. Um, one 19th century philosopher, Karl Marx, he was pained to see all the injustices in the world. He was pained to see how uh, workers were exploited. So he, um, he wrote 
philosophical books on how, uh, how society should be organized and to be fair to everyone. His philosophical books are what are called that, that his philosophical books are based on what is called Marxism. That led eventually to a Marxist revolution in in Russia. But it ended up the situation under the under the um under Stalin was even worse than the situation under the Tsars. So by very many good intentioned people who tried to rectify the world. And we have to appreciate the good, their good intentions, but it, we cannot, the problems of the world do not lie outside, they lie in, within ourselves. If we try to rectify society without rectifying the individuals that make up society, whatever social system you have, so long as individuals are defective, the system will be, however perfect the system it will be, in practice it will be defective, because it's, it's the, the system is just a collection of individuals, so all the imperfections of the individuals will, um, will have an impact upon the system. So there's no perfect social system. We, we cannot rectify this world. We, what our mission is to rectify ourselves. If we rectify ourselves, thereby we wake up from this and all problems are solved. Bhagavan said, the greatest good to, you can do to the world is your own, um, it's, it's knowing and being what you actually are. Because when you know and be what you actually are, there is then no world to be rectified. Because what is alone is as it always is. And that is infinite happiness. That is what we actually are. I, I hope that answers that question adequately. Of course, in the case of Mahatma Gandhi, um, he was being his true to his nature. Yeah. And he did what was required of him without yes. ego sense. Yes, but even even, even that we see see the the outcome of that. See the, what happened at the time of partition. Um, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people on both sides were butchered. So it, there's no, the world is never perfect. We cannot make the world perfect. Gandhi had a mission. That is, there were, there was under the, that is, the colonial system was a very unjust system. It was one rich nation was plundering other nations for its own um for its own enrichment um so it was it, it, colonialism is a is a obviously very very unjust so uh, rather than fighting against that by violent means gandhi stuck uh, steadfastly to ahimsa which was very good and he succeeded in a certain sense in that he got independence but in the aftermath of the independence, there were the terrible, um, the, the the terrible effects of the partition. So, we, it's things happen as they're meant to happen. That Gandhi played the role he was supposed to play. The the partition of India into uh, was that was what was destined to happen. That happened. I mean, that's um, we can say it's unfortunate, but it it was what was meant to be. So it is what 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 happened. But um, from our perspective, we shouldn't think, oh, because Gandhi was doing that, we should do like that. 
that was, as you say, it was Gandhi's nature to do like that. He was driven by his own nature to do what he did. But when we are spiritual aspirants, when we're trying to follow the spiritual path, I'm not saying that Gandhi wasn't a spiritual aspirant. He was also a spiritual aspirant in his own way. He was very humble, as you say, and he he was very much concerned about his own purity and everything. But when we come to Bhagavan's path, we, our aim is to turn within more and more and more. That is the path that Bhagavan has taught us. That is the ultimate solution to all the problems of the world. In fact, the people surrounding Gandhi were afraid that he might meet Bhagavan and then drop all his... Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they actually stopped him. He, he came very, very close to meeting uh, Bhagavan because uh, a meeting was arranged in what was then the, the uh, cattle market ground, which is now the, the government arts college uh, compound. There was a meeting there. That's just uh, not, uh, very, very close to Ashram. So Gandhi deliberately cut his meeting short because he wanted to come and see Bhagavan. But those around him, Rajaji and others, they didn't want him to meet Bhagavan. So they they delayed, delayed, delayed him and they wished him. He went past Ashram. As he went past Ashram, the Ashram gate, he did Namaskaram to, to Bhagavan from there. But he never got to meet Bhagavan. So close, but it, it was not the divine will for it to happen. Because Gandhi had a mission. As you say, if he had met Bhagavan, things may have been different. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so next question. Um, did Bhagavan ever recommend pranayama or other practices that would be supplementary to self-investigation? Of his own accord, he never recommended such practices. Uh, I'll just, uh, just, uh, just to finish off. Oh, oh, sorry. In chapter two of the Bhagavad Gita, describes in detail the qualities of Gnani. Did Bhagavan ever describe? Oh, I guess no, that's the second part. Yeah, okay, uh, sorry. Uh, let me deal with the first part. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. So, uh, about pranayama, Bhagavan of his own accord never recommended pranayama. However, because there were people who, who, whose minds are drawn to those sort of practices, Bhagavan did give teachings about uh, pranayama. For example, in the um, in the eighth paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says very clearly, um, for the mind to cease except the charana, there is no other adequate means. If made to cease by other means, the mind remaining as if it had ceased will rise again or will rise up. Uh, even by pranayama, the mind will uh, cease. Or for those who don't know, pranayama means uh, breath restraint, it, the, the yoga practice of breath restraint. Even by pranayama, the mind will cease, subside or disappear. However, so long as prana, the life of uh, uh, as manifested in breathing and so on, as, so as long as prana remains subsided, mind will also remain subsided. And when prana emerges, it, it, the mind will also emerge and wander under the sway of its vasanas. In other words, the, the, though you can bring about a, 
uh, temporary subsidence or dissolution of the mind by means of pranayama, it is only temporary. It will not. It is not permanent. So as soon as the 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 breath becomes active again, the mind will also rise, and it, when the mind rises, it will wander under the sway of its vasanas. The implication is that by curbing, by bringing about the subsidence of mind by pranayama, is not destroying the vasanas. The vasanas remain intact, um, uh, just like the vasanas remain intact when we fall asleep. Um, then he goes on to explain. The birthplace for both the mind and for prana is one. You know, the birthplace here means our own source, our own being, the, the pure awareness I am. Um, thought alone is the uh, nature, is the very nature of the mind. The thought called I alone is the first thought of the mind. It alone is ego. From where ego arises, from there alone the breath also rises up. Therefore, when the mind ceases, the breath also ceases. And when the breath ceases, the mind also ceases. The, the prana um, is said, the, the prana is called or said to be the gross form of the mind. Until the time of death, the mind keeps the prana in the body. And at the moment the body dies, grasping it, grasping the prana, it goes. In other words, the life force goes along with the ego. Therefore, pranayama is just an aid to restrain the mind, but will not bring about manonasa. Manonasa means annihilation of mind. So by pranayama, you can bring about a temporary dissolution of mind, but not the permanent dissolution of mind, which is called manonasa. In other words, pranayama, as Bhagavan often said, can lead to manolaya, it cannot lead to manonasa. And likewise, in verses um, uh, 11 to 14, or 11 to 15 of Upadesha Undia, Bhagavan talks about um talks about uh, uh pranayama what what he says is um beginning from verse 11 in, in verse 11 he says when one restrains the breath within like a bird caught in a net the mind also will be restrained this is a means to restrain uh and then he in verse 12 he says Mind and breath are two branches which have knowing and being. That, that is, their, their functions are knowing and being. That's the implication. Their root is one. That is, they both come from the same uh, mulam or source. And then in verse 13, he says, dissolution, meaning he, he's talking about dissolution of mind. Dissolution is, a, is two. Leia and Nasa. In other words, there are two kinds of dissolution of mind, Leia and Nasa. What is lying down, in other words, what is in Leia will rise. If its form dies, in other words, in Nasa, it will not rise. So the difference between Leia and Nasa, both the states in which the mind is dissolved, but Leia is a temporary dissolution, whereas Nasa is permanent dissolution. Sleep is a type of Leia. Nivikalpa Samadhi is a type of layer. Coma is a type of layer. General anesthesia is a type of layer. These are all different types of layer. In all these states, the mind is dissolved. 
but it rises again. Um, and then in verse 14, he says, this is the really important verse, um, uh, only when one sends the mind, which becomes calm or subsides, when one restrains the breath, on the investigating path will its form perish. That is, Bhagavan often used to advise people who practice pranayama, they should not continue practicing to the state where they reach Nivikalpa Samadhi, because Nivikalpa Samadhi is just a temporary dissolution. You, in Nivikalpa Samadhi, you're, it's just like, a, um, just like the train stopping in the station. It's not making any progress. So we can't make spiritual progress in the state of, of Nivikalpa Samadhi. So Bhagavan said, without allowing the mind to subside in Nivikalpa Samadhi, if you practice pranayama, you can practice to the extent to which the mind is calmed down, but then before it completely subsides in, in Nivikalpa Samadhi, you should then direct, make use of that calmness of mind to direct your attention back within. This is what he means here with when he says, only when one sends the mind on the investigating path will its form perish. The word he uses here in Tamil for investigating path is or vari. Vari means path or way or means. Um, or can be interpreted in two ways. Or is a verb but means to investigate and know. So or vari means the, the path of investigate, the investigating path, in other words, the path of self-investigation. Or also that is if we take it as investigation, or is a, a, a poetic abbreviation for orumbari, the investigating path. Or we can take or to be, um, that is, <coughs> or can mean one, that is the word for one as an adjective in Tamil is oru. But before a vowel, oru becomes or, like in English, a and an. Um, we, we say a before a consonant and an before a vowel in the same way in Tamil. If oru, if you want to say oru before a vowel, you say it becomes or. In this case, uh, uh, vari, the word for path, is not is a consonant. So if you want to say one path in prose, you'd say oru vari. But in poetry, you don't have to stick to these rules. You can use for uh, you can use or in place of oru um, for the for poetry. So or vari can be taken to mean either the one path or the investigating path. According to Bhagavan, the path of self-investigation is the one path by which we can annihilate mind. So, and that's the implication here. He says only if the mind is sent on that path will its form die. So the, the, the path he's referring to here is the path of self-investigation. So does that mean that Bhagavan encourages us to practice pranayama in order to calm down the mind, in order to turn the mind within? No, Bhagavan said that is not necessary. Why? Because the most effective way to calm down the mind is self-investigation. To turn our attention within is the most uh, effective means to calm down the mind. So we don't need to first calm down the mind in order to turn it within. 
But Bhagavan gave this advice for those who are drawn to the path of yoga. Um, yes, okay, if you like to practice calming your mind, fine, calm your mind. But then use that calm mind to turn your attention back within. But um, truly speaking, I, I mean, Bhagavan never of his own accord recommended that we should try to calm the mind down because whether the mind is calm or agitated, we are always aware I am. So we don't have to wait for the mind to become calm before we turn our attention within. So this, 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 um, what Bhagavan says in this verse is, is for those who are drawn to this practice, he's advising them, don't let the mind go to the extent of of Nivikalpa Samadhi, because Nivikalpa Samadhi is a state like sleep, it's a state of manolaya, so you can't do anything in Nivikalpa Samadhi. Before you go so far, when the mind is calmed down by pranayama, then send it on the, this investigating part. In other words, direct your attention back within to see who am I. Um, in this context, it's, it's, it's useful to, um, to, to, to point out what Bhagavan's view of Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi is. That is, everyone knows Bhagavan used to tell a story, but many people fail to understand why Bhagavan told this story. That is, the story he told is of a yogi on the banks of the Ganga. This yogi was very adept at, um, at pranayama and other such practices. He was so adept, but he was often going into Nivikalpa Samadhi. Because people saw him immersed for hours on end, or sometimes days on end, in Nivikalpa Samadhi, they thought he's a great sage. So um, he had a disciple who was, um, who was uh, serving him. And where he was living was just on, just outside a village on the banks of the Ganga. The village was also on the banks of the Ganga, but a bit a bit further away. So um, his disciple would uh, beg food from the village and bring it for him. And most of the time, this yogi was spending in Nivikalpa Samadhi. One day, he woke up from his Nivikalpa Samadhi and he was feeling thirsty. So he asked his disciple to fetch water for him. So the disciple went down to the Ganga to fetch water. But by the time he came back, the yogi had again gone into Nivikalpa Samadhi. And this time he went in so deeply into Nivikalpa Samadhi, but he remained in that state for 300 years. Nowadays, people may say, oh, how is it possible to stay in Nivikalpa Samadhi for 300 years? Theoretically, at least, it is possible because if you, for yogis who are practicing pranayama, they, they restrain not only the prana, they restrain all the physiological, I mean, not only the breath, they, they restrain all of the prana. That means all the physiological functions in the body. So it is possible for yogis to um, uh, reduce their uh, breathing down to maybe one breath every few minutes. And along with that, their heart rate will also uh, reduce, maybe one pulse a minute or something. So if they remain in that state for a prolonged period, the body is like in a state of suspended animation. Uh, 
So anyway, that, the belief is anyway that yogis can stay in that state for a prolonged period of time. So in this Bhagavan is telling this story for a purpose. The, so he said he remained in Nirvikalpa Samadhi for 300 years. That means a, a very, very long time he remained in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. When he woke up, the first thing he did was he angrily asked, where is my water? And as Bhagavan told the story, Bhagavan, well, um, Bhagavan um, told it in a very uh, graphic way. He said, in those 300 years, the Ganga had changed course. So the Ganga, which was nearby 300 years before, is now several miles away. And because the Ganga has moved, the village also moved to, uh, to be closer to the river. So the, he was, he was, when he woke up, he was actually in the midst of a dense jungle. No, everyone had forgotten that he was there. But the, the, the point of the story is, when he woke up, the first thing he did was he angrily asked, where is my water? What Bhagavan inferred from this story was, when even the most superficial thought in his mind, that is the last thought was in his mind before he went into his into Nivikalka Samadhi, was the first thought that popped up. That means not even the most superficial thought in his mind, the thought of the surface of his mind, not even that thought is destroyed by 300 years in Nivikalpa Samadhi. So what to say of all the Vasanas? In other words, Bhagavan told this story to illustrate that it may be very pleasant to be in Nivikalpa Samadhi, maybe a very blissful state like sleep. We all like to sleep. But by remaining in sleep for 300 years, we don't make any progress. Likewise, making remaining in Nivikalpa Samadhi for any number of years is not going to enable us to make any progress because Nivikalpa Samadhi is a state of manolaya. In a state of manolaya, the mind ceases to exist, but only temporarily. When it rises, it rises, and as Bhagavan says in the eighth paragraph, it rises and wanders under the sway of its vasanas, because the vasanas remain intact in that state. Vasanas can be, <coughs> vasanas, the Vishaya vasanas are our inclination to go outwards. <coughs> we can weaken those only in the waking and dream state, because how do vasanas derive their strength? They derive their strength from us. Because we allow ourselves to be swayed by the vasanas, they are thereby strengthened. In order to weaken the vasanas, we need to refrain from being swayed by them. So it is only in the waking and dream states that we can cling to self-attentiveness and thereby refrain from being swayed by any Vishaya Vasanas. That is why Bhagavan says in the, um, in the 11th paragraph of Nana, um, uh, wait a second, oh, sorry, just get it. Uh, yes, yeah. Um, he, in the first sentence of uh, the um, 11th paragraph, he says, Manatin kan edu varil vishaya vasanegal irukindranavo adu varil nana ennum vicharaneyam vendum. Um, as long as vishaya vasanas, um, <coughs> oh no, sorry, this wasn't, okay, I'll read this anyway. There's no harm in reading this. As long as vishaya vasanas exist within the mind, so long is the investigation who am I necessary? 
as and when thoughts appear, then and there it is necessary to annihilate them all by vicharana in the very place from which they rise. How do we annihilate them all by in the very place from which they arise? If we hold on firmly to self-attentiveness, which is what is called vicharana, we thereby don't allow ourselves to be swayed by Vavasana. So Vavasanas are constantly rising, as he said in the previous paragraph, they're rising in countless numbers like ocean waves. But if we're clinging to self-attentiveness, as soon as Vavasana rises, because we don't allow ourselves to be swayed by it, it is annihilated then and there in the very place it arises. Um, the sentence actually I wanted to read was the first sentence of the tenth paragraph, in which he says, Tondru to, but same idea. Tondru totu varu kindra basanegal alabatrabanai alabatrabanai What that means is, even though Vishaya Basanas which come from time immemorial, rising countless numbers like ocean waves, they will all be destroyed when Swarupa Dhyana increases and increases. Swarupa Dhyana means meditation on our own real nature, in other words, self-attentiveness. So the more we hold on to self-attentiveness, the more the vasanas will be destroyed. So the means to destroy Vavasanas is to hold on to self-attentiveness in the wake, which we can do only in the waking and dream states. We can't hold on to self-attentiveness in sleep because there's no mind there to hold on to self-attentiveness. Um, and likewise, we can't do it in Nirvikalpa Samadhi because there's no mind in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. So it's only in the waking and dream state that we can make spiritual progress by clinging to self-attentiveness and therefore not allowing ourselves to be swayed by Vishaya Vasanas. That is how we overcome the Vasanas. So um, the answer is Bhagavan of his own accord never encouraged anyone to do pranayama. But for those who were inclined to that, that is many people are inclined to be particularly people with a strong sense of doership. What can I do? You can do this uh, yoga. Um, that's one thing. One other point to make here is that the aim of yoga, pranayama is one of the eight limbs of yoga, or Patanjali yoga. Um, in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, he begins by defining what is yoga. Yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha. That means yoga is to restrain or curb or stop the chitta vritti, the activity of the mind. <clears throat> Bhagavan said that should not be our aim, because we 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 stop the activity of mind every night when we fall asleep, but we don't make any progress spiritual progress in sleep. So merely stopping the mental activity will result in manolaya. That is not our aim. Bhagavan said the, our aim should be to know what we actually are. If we know that by turning our attention back within to try and see what we actually are, thereby the thoughts will be uh, will be curbed, will be restrained. But that is not the aim. That is a byproduct. 
That is, the stopping of thoughts is not our aim. It, it will happen as an effect of this Atmavichara. The aim of Atmavichara is to know ourselves, because it is only by knowing ourselves that we can bring about Manonasa. So Bhagavan, it's recorded in talks and in Mahayoga and other places. Bhagavan said, in yoga they say, Chitta Vritti Nirodaha. That is not practical. Here we say Atman Vaishana. Atman Vaishana means Atma Vichara, in other words, self-investigation, investigating what we are. That is the practical way. So I, I, I've answered that part of the question. There, there was another part, I think, Chris. Yeah, the next part is in Chapter 2 of the Bhagavad Gita, describes in detail the qualities of Agnani. Did Bhagavan ever describe the qualities of Agnani? If so, could you share? I remember you saying that Bhagavan said that the body of Gnani is God's prasad to the world. Yes, that Bhagavan said. I mean, Bhagavan did say various things, but, but to, to summarize all that Bhagavan taught about the nature of Vijnani, Bhagavan, Bhagavan used to say, very simple sentence in Tamil, jnana me jnani. That means jnana itself is the jnana, or jnana alone is the jnani. Jnana means pure awareness, and that is our real nature. In verse 13 of, of Uladunapadu, Bhagavan says, jnana mam tane me. That means oneself who is jnana alone is real. So jnana is our own real nature pure awareness. What jnani means one who knows pure awareness. What can know pure awareness? Only pure awareness can know pure awareness, because pure awareness can never be an object of awareness. So what knows pure awareness is only pure awareness. So jnana alone is the jnani. So that, that says it all. However, because we take ourselves to be a body, sometimes it seems to us that the jnani is a body. For example, Bhagavan is jnani. Bhagavan is jnana swarupa. His, his very nature is jnana. But in our view, he seemed to be a person who lived for 54 years in Tiruvannamalai, who gave us all these teachings and everything. Bhagavan said, so long as you take yourself to be a body, you take the jnani to be a body. But in the that's only in your view. In the view of the jnani, there is no body, no world, nothing. There is only jnana. So our own real nature, which is jnana, appeared outwardly in the form of Bhagavan in order to tell us to turn within. But so the outward form of Bhagavan is not his real form. His real form, his Swarupa, is Atma Swarupa, our own real nature. But uh, he appeared in that form in order to tell us to turn within. That doesn't mean we should discard that external form. So long as we are attached to this form, we should have love and reverence for that form, because that form is the form that is constantly reminding us to turn within and see ourselves. So we should... So, we should always have the greatest respect for the name and form of Guru, even though we know that is not the real nature of Guru. What Guru actually is, is that which is shining in our heart as our own being, as our fundamental awareness I am.
That is what Bhagavan actually is, but he appeared outwardly in order to tell us the term within. So, ultimately, if you want to know the nature of Banyani, you have to know who am I. That's the only way. In Uladu Napadu, Bhagavan says in verse, in verse 30, uh, wait, in 31, I think. Um, yes. This, this is, like many of these verses, Bhagavan packs a lot into, uh, uh, into a very few words. That is, he uses a term here, Tanmayananda. Tanmayananda means happiness, which is the nature of that. In other words, happiness, which is Brahman. But in Tamil, by adding an R, the letter R, the consonant R, at the end of, of a noun, like Ananda, you can make it into a personal noun. And, and it is, but if you want to make it ordinary, you would say Anandan. That, that is an ordinary personal noun. If you say Anandar with an R, it is a, it is, it's, it's an honorific plural. But though it's plural, it's not intend that it's plural in form, it's not plural in implication. So Bhagavan uses this term Tanmayananda for to mean those who are uh, whose very nature is happiness composed of that, in other words, Brahman. So he says, um, for those who are happiness composed of that, which rose destroying themselves. That is that Tamayananda rises from within, destroying ourselves. Destroying themselves means destroying ego. What one thing exists for doing. In other words, what Vijnani is, is just that infinite happiness that is the nature of Brahman. And that infinite happiness rose, destroying ego. So what remain, what exists for them to do? There's nothing for them to do because their nature is pure being, is the implication. Then he goes on to say, Tanne aladu anyam ondrum ariya. They do not know anything other than themselves. In other words, they are pure awareness. They know nothing other than themselves, than, than their own being. I am. Abanileme innadu endru unnal evan. Who can conceive their state as like this? In other words, we, in, in their view, there is nothing other than themselves. They alone exist. They are the, they are the infinite Satchidananda. There's nothing other than that in their view. And they are that. So, how can, as Bhagavan says, who can conceive their state as like this? We, we can't say their state of Banyani is like anything. Because it's not like anything, it is, it's unique, it's the only thing that actually exists. So we cannot grasp it by our mind. Our mind can never conceive the state of a jnani. So if, how can we know the state of a jnani? Only by, as he says in verse 26 of, Uluduna, of Upadeshundia, Tanai iritale tanai aridalam. Being oneself alone is knowing oneself. So if you want to know, uh, if you want to know what is the state of jnana, you need to be that jnana itself. That is the only way. So Bhagavan didn't say much about the state of jnana because whatever he said would be 
Of course, when people ask questions, he gave appropriate answers to their questions. But Bhagavan, the purpose of Bhagavan's teachings is not just to give us entertaining accounts of how the jnani will be, because we, whatever may be said in words will fall short. It, it cannot, the state of the jnani cannot be adequately expressed in words. We cannot even conceive it by mind. We can know it only by being it. The aim of Bhagavan's teachings is to show us the means by which we ourselves can know ourselves as jnana. So that is the aim of Bhagavan's teachings. So Bhagavan generally doesn't talk much about these things. Of course, there are. I could point out verses where he says that there's one verse in Uludhanapduanabandham where he says um, the that uh, um, he he said the the jnani is like a, a sleep a person sleeping in a cart, just like a person sleeping in a bullock cart doesn't know whether the um, whether the cart is moving or standing still or unyoked from the bulls, because they're asleep. Likewise, the jnani who is sleeping in the body, that's, of course, a metaphorical way of saying it, because the jnani is the infinite whole. He cannot be contained within the body. But from our perspective, the jnani seems to be within the body. So the jnani who is sleeping within the body doesn't know the activity of the body, the inactivity, or the um, nishta, the, the state of, um, of seeming, whether the body is in, from, from the onlooker's view, is active or inactive or in a state of samadhi, the jnani is unaware of any of this because he is asleep in Brahman. He's sleeping in the body. He's, he's in that um, waking, uh, waking sleep. So he's unaware of what is, of, of the, body or the condition of the body. The body of the jnani exists only in the view of the ajnani, as Bhagavan often said. In the view of the jnani, there is only jnana, nothing but jnana. So I hope that's a helpful answer to that question. Right, the next question. Um, I've read before that ultimately it is Bhagavan or Self which chooses to no longer project Maya through an apparent individuality. There is, um, there is a, in one of the Upanishads, there is a sentence that is often quoted, and it is generally interpreted, they alone, or only one whom Atman chooses, uh, uh, knows Atman, something to that effect. That is how it is usually interpreted. But Shankara, in his commentary, he clarifies what the meaning of that is. That is, only those who choose Atman know Atman. That is, the choice has to be on our part. We, Atman is choosing all of us. <laughs> that is, Atman is our own real nature. Atman, the grace of Atman is equal for all of us. But we need to choose Atman. We need to yield ourselves to that grace and allow ourselves to be drawn inwards. So it, that is grace. The, the will of Bhagavan is that we should all subside and, uh, and merge back in our source. Why we have not yet subsided, though it is his will, because he will never force his will upon us. He will make us willing to surrender ourselves to him, and then only he will swallow us. 
So it, 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 though the driving force comes from grace, grace isn't partial, just selecting, or oh, today I'll select this one, tomorrow I'll select that one. Grace is totally impartial. Grace is, equally chooses all of us. It depends on our level of maturity, whether we feel the inward pull of grace, whether we are willing to yield ourselves to that inward pull of grace. So grace is, is always unchanging, it is always constant in drawing us back within. But the, it all depends on our willingness, our love to turn back within. That is why Bhagavan often said, Bhakti is the mother of jnana. We can, we can know ourselves as, as we actually are only by loving to know ourselves as we actually are, only by being willing to turn within and to hold firmly to self-attentiveness, willingness to subside and to be as we actually are. So Bhagavan is never partial. He's not. We, we shouldn't think, oh, Bhagavan has chosen me, so I, I, I'm very special. Bhagavan is impartial. He's equal to all. But um, we happen to have reached a stage where we have had enough of this world and we are therefore attracted to Bhagavan and his teachings. That is all by his grace. But his grace is equally working in the heart of everyone. But just the the what the effect of grace in the heart of each of us depends upon how far we progress so far along this spiritual path. Even in the worst of worst sinners, even in the heart of Stalin and Hitler and Genghis Khan and all these terrible um, people there have been in history, in the heart of each and every one of them, Bhagavan is shining as I. But because their minds are very strongly outward going, they've got very strong Vishaya Vasanas, they are unaware of his presence in, in, in their heart. And so they're going outwards doing all sorts of atrocities. Um, but slowly, slowly, even the worst of worst sinners will eventually be saved, because that's the very nature of grace. Bhagavan gives that assurance in the final verse of Arunachala um, uh, Ashtakam. He, he says, just like the water that is um, evaporated from the ocean will fall as rain, and it will, and it will, and it will take so many courses, and it, but it will not stop until it returns to the ocean, its source. And just like the birds flying in the air cannot find any place of rest until they return to earth, likewise, all jivas will eventually find rest only in you. So the implication there is eventually we all have to return to our source. We all have to return to our own being and to be as we actually are. But in the, in the meanwhile, we have so many different paths to follow until eventually we come to and go back the way we came. He's, Bhagavan uses that term there, go back the way we came. That is one of Bhagavan's favorite, uh, uh, favorite uh, terms. Once someone came to, to Bhagavan from a very long distance, and said, Bhagavan, I've come to you for some teachings. Um, can you give me some useful teachings? 
Bhagavan said, go the way you came. That person didn't understand. He thought, what? What? I've come all this long way from North India. I've traveled so, I had to save up so much money and with so much difficulty, I've traveled all this long way to see this great sage. And he tells me to go back the way I came. What, what is this? Then, uh, he, so he was a bit upset about this. And he said to people, what is this? Why did he say like that to me? And then someone explained to him, what he means is where we have all come from, is from our own being, from I am. We all need to go back the way we came. In other words, we need to return to our source. Then he understood what Bhagavan meant, and he understood that was actually a very great Upadesha Bhagavan had given him. Go back the way you came. So we all have to, sooner or later, even Hitler and Stalin and all these terrible um, monsters, they all had to go back the way they came. It will take time, but eventually they will all go back the way they came, just like we all will. So Bhagavan's grace is impartial. It is equal to all. It's the difference is in the extent to which we are willing to yield ourselves to grace. That is where the difference lies. And even that willingness to yield ourselves to grace is only the fruit of his grace. It's only his grace that makes us willing to yield ourselves to it. So his grace is working in the hearts of each and every one of us to draw us back to itself. So the next question, um, in my understanding, turning attention within means not attending to the mind or the world. However, when acting in the world through grace, we are using the senses. How to keep this attention inward and stay in who we are, grace, as we are in action, experiencing the world. It seems to us to be that in order to do things in this world, we need to be attending to what we are doing. But according to Bhagavan, whatever is that is our, everything that we are to experience in this life is preordained. It's the fruit of our past actions, actions in, done in past lives, but Bhagavan has selected for us to experience in this lifetime. So what is to happen is going to happen. What is not going to happen is not going to happen. It's already predetermined. And whatever actions of mind, speech, and body we need to do in order to experience our prarabdha, we will be made to do. So obviously, in order to experience our prarabdha, you're hungry and it's your destiny now to eat a meal. In order to eat a meal, you need to put the food in your mouth, you need to chew it and everything. So whatever actions are necessary for us to experience our, what we are destined to experience, our mind, speech, and body will be made to do those actions by God. This is what Bhagavan says in the first sentence of the note he wrote for his mother in December 1898, when she came and asked him, was pleading with him to come back to Madurai, Bhagavan at first just kept silent, and then someone gave him a paper and pencil and asked him to write, at least to write something for the sake of his mother. So he wrote this. This is the first 
recording we have of any teaching given by Bhagavan, and it is an extremely important teaching. What he says in that uh, note is, Abharava prarabdha prakaram adakanavan angangirindu artavipan. What that means is, Abharabdha prakaram means in accordance with the destiny or prarabdha or fate of each one, adakanavan, he who is for that, angangirindu, being there, there, artavipan will cause to dance. What that means is, in accordance with our destiny, we'll be made, he who is for that means God or Guru, but one who has uh, allotted the destiny for the prarabdha for us. Angangirandu, being there, there, means being in each place. That implies being in the heart of each one of us. And artavipan literally means will cause to dance. In other words, he will, he will make us act in accordance with our destiny. That is, whatever we are destined to experience, we, there will be certain actions we have to do in order to experience that. We will be made to do those actions. However, that doesn't mean that all the actions we do are actions we're made to do by God, because there are two forces driving the actions of our mind, speech, and body. That is, Bhagavan is making us do those actions that are necessary in order for us to experience a destiny. So whether whether we want to do those actions or not, we'll be made to do those actions. However, in while we are being made to do those actions, we are also doing many actions under the sway of our vasanas. The actions we do under the sway of our vasanas are called agamya. Sometimes many of the actions that we are made to do by Bhagavan, in order to experience our prarabdha, also happen to be actions that we want to do. So we are also doing them under the sway of our, our vasanas. So to the extent that any action is done under the sway of our vasanas, it is called agamya. Agamya is the action we do that bears fruit. The fruit of that agamya gets stored in sanchitta. Sanchitta is a, it, it literally means a heap or pile. That is the heap or pile of all the fruits of past actions that we haven't yet experienced. And that is a vast, vast pile because in every life we accumulate more fruit than we experience. Uh, so for each life, Bhagavan selects a certain selects a certain selects from that huge pile certain fruit for us to experience the fruit that he selects for us to experience in this lifetime is called prarabdha the prarabdha is predetermined we cannot change it so in the second sentence of the note he wrote for his mother he said endrum naduvadu enwichikanum naduvadu that means what is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. That What that implies is, we, however much effort, we cannot make anything happen that is not destined to happen. But the implication there, when he says, in spite of any amount of effort, the implication is that we are free to want to experience what we are not destined to experience. We are free to try to experience it, but we are not free to, ex to experience it. So it may be my destiny, 
or, or destiny of any of us to be poor all our life. Just because it's our destiny to be poor doesn't stop us wanting to be rich. We can want to be rich, we can try to be rich, but because it's our destiny to be poor, however much we try to be rich, we will remain poor, because that's such is our destiny. And then in the next sentence, the third sentence, he said the, the other side of the same thing. He says, Nadapadu enum niladu. What is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstruction. So if something is to happen, if we are to experience a certain prarabdha, we can want to avoid it, we can try to avoid it, but we cannot avoid it. So we can try to, we can make all the efforts we want to avoid it, still we have to experience it. In other words, what is to happen is going to happen, what is not to happen is not going to happen. And then he says, this is certain. Ahalin monomai irike nandru. Therefore, being silent is good. What does he mean by being silent? Does he mean that we shouldn't do anything? No, obviously, the mind, speech, and body will be made to do whatever actions are necessary for the, for, in accordance with the prarabdha. Uh, he, Bhagavan, will make them do that. What he means by being silent is that we shouldn't rise as ego. Because only when we rise as ego do we come under the sway of vasanas and thereby do agamya. If we, if we, if we hold fast to self-attentiveness, we thereby subside back within and remain just silently be. That is what is good. That is what we should all be aiming for. So we we need not concern ourselves about the actions. That, that is the actions that we are. But we need to do in accordance with our destiny, Bhagavan will make us do those actions. Any other actions we do are actions we do under the sway of our vasanas. In order to avoid doing those actions, we need to avoid rising as ego, because as soon as we rise as ego, we come under the sway of vasanas and go outwards. So in order to avoid rising as ego, we need to cling to self-attentiveness. If we cling to self-attentiveness, we thereby avoid rising as ego, avoid being swayed by thereby avoid being swayed by our vasanas and thereby avoid doing any agamya. That is what Bhagavan means by being silent. Many people misunderstand Bhagavan's teaching because he says God will make us do whatever uh, what will make us act in accordance with our destiny. And um, Bhagavan said, whatever is destined to happen will happen. It's all predetermined. Many people misunderstood this to mean Bhagavan says everything is predetermined, therefore there is no free will. Bhagavan never said there is no free will. Bhagavan actually often talked about what freedom we as Jiva have. The Jiva Swatantra, the freedom of Jiva, is twofold. Icha Swatantra, the freedom to, of will, and Kriya Swatantra, the freedom of action. Where does the freedom of will come in? That is, we have so many vasanas, and those vasanas are constantly rising, as Bhagavan said, like, like ocean waves, in countless numbers like ocean waves. So the vasanas are just inclinations. Often our vasanas are pulling us in many different directions. So it is we who, we are free 
to choose to be swayed by this vasana or that vasana. That is so. It's at the level of allowing ourselves to be swayed or not swayed by any particular vasana. That is where our freedom of will lies. When, if we allow ourselves to be swayed by our vishaya vasanas, under the sway of our those vishaya vasanas, we will do actions of at the very minimum will do actions of mind. And actions of mind usually lead to actions of speech and actions of body. So all the actions we do under the sway of Vishaya Vasanas, they are the Agamya. So we we have the freedom of will and the freedom of action. Without that freedom of will and freedom of action, we could not do Agamya. Without doing Agamya, there would be no fruit. Without fruit, there would be no Sanchitta. Without Sanchita, there'd be no agamya. There, I mean, there'd be no prarabdha. So, but what is predetermined is the fruit of those actions we've done in the past, under the, you misusing our free will, allowing thereby allowing ourselves to be swayed by vishaya vasanas. What is the correct use that we can make of our free will? Only by Wanting instead of allowing ourselves to be swayed by any vishaya vasana, allowing ourselves to be swayed only by sat vasana, by turning within and clinging firmly to self-attentiveness. That is the correct use of our freedom of will and our freedom of action. Not that clinging to self-attentiveness is an action, it is a cessation of action, but we use our freedom of will and action to do that. So that is Jiva Swatantra. That is the freedom we have as an individual. In other words, we have the freedom to want whatever we want. We have the freedom to try for whatever we want. We don't have the freedom to experience it unless it is destined to happen. So there is no, to put it in modern philosophical terms, Bhagavan is a compatibilist. That is, Freedom of will and freedom of action are compatible with predetermination. Um, because, in fact, what is predetermined is, uh, is the fruit of our previous misuse of our freedom of will and action. So they are, there's, no, there's no conflict between them. Destiny or predetermination determines what we are to experience. Our freedom of will determines what we want to experience. Our freedom of, a, of action determines what we try to experience. But what we actually experience, that is determined by destiny. So there's absolutely no conflict between freedom of will and action on the one hand, and uh, predetermination on the other hand. They, they're perfectly compatible. That is why Bhagavan says in verse 19 of Uludunapadu, the dispute as to which prevails, fate or will, is only for those who lack the, who are unable to discern the, uh, the root of both fate and will. That is, vidimati mulam vivekam ilake, only for those who lack the vivaka, the, the power of distinguishing the root of, uh, of um, fate and will, the root of fate and will is ego, only for those who fail to distinguish that, to recognize that, 
is there this dispute about which prevails, fate or will? If we understand the nature of ego correctly, we will understand that, e that what ego is to that is, the fate is what ego is to experience. That is predetermined. The, the, the uh, will is what ego wants to experience. So the fate decides what we are to experience. Our will decides what we want to experience. The two are in no way in conflict because we can want to experience anything as much as we, we like. Uh, we're not going to experience it unless it is our fate to experience it. We can want to avoid something, but if it's our fate, it's going to happen anyway. So we, our will is perfectly free. We are free to want whatever we want to want, but we are not free to experience it. Because what is we are to experience is what we are destined to experience. I've now forgotten what the question was, but I hope that that answered the question. I asked the question. Um, yes. Yes. Turn my, my, my um, and I guess it's um, thank you for the answer. Yeah. Uh, and it's maybe um, very basic. So when I practice self attention, I'm trying to go as deep within as I can. Yeah. And yeah. this creates where I almost see every everything else is like background. It's not yeah. really. Yeah. Yeah. But then I decide I want to have some blueberries and I start eating blueberries and it's very yummy. <laughs> and I don't know how to, I don't understand how to keep the attention when I'm experiencing, you understand something in life. I, 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 understand, I understand exactly. This is, this is the same, um, this is the problem for anyone who's following this path. That is this your inclination to enjoy that blueberry, that is a Vishaya Vasana. Mm -hmm. Your inclination to hold on to self-attentiveness is satvasana. You so long as you're holding on to self-attentiveness, you're being swayed by the satvasana. As soon as you think of the blueberry and you go and start eating the blueberry, you're allowing your mind to go outwards. However, if it is your destiny to eat that blueberry, you will eat the blueberry even if your attention is fixed within. But most of us in practice, we keep on, we keep on allowing, we keep on losing our hold on self-attentiveness. If you hold on firmly to self-attentiveness, you can still eat the blueberry, you won't even notice it. It will be background, as you say. Why did it come foreground? Because you allow your attention to go outwards onto that. Okay. Is that clear? Yes, thank you. So, what we attend to is foreground. What we don't attend to becomes background. And the more we attend to one thing, the more everything else becomes background. So, the more we attend to ourselves, the more everything else becomes background, and eventually it will all disappear. And we alone will remain. Other things we draw into the background to the extent to which we are attending to ourselves. So the more, more keenly and deeply we attend to ourselves, the more, the more we will cease to be aware of other things. But Thank the, you. the other things won't cease entirely until 
the knower of them, namely ego, ceases entirely. And ego will cease entirely only when we know ourselves as pure awareness. When ego turns within so keenly that it sees itself alone, that it's aware of itself alone, then it experiences itself as pure awareness. By experiencing itself as pure awareness, it ceases to be ego and remains as pure awareness. That is the annihilation of ego. So when a thought comes to do something, if there's, how do you distinguish between when that thought is from the mind or when it's grace why speaking? Should, why should you distinguish? Your only task is to hold on to self-attentiveness and to ignore thoughts. If it is your destiny, I mean, if, if that thought and the actions that result from that thought are in accordance with your destiny, Bhagavan will make your mind, speech, and body do those actions. It is no concern of yours. Your only concern should be holding on to your being, I am. So in this path, we are moving away from doing towards being. The mind, speech, and body may continue doing, because that's their nature. And they will be made to act in accordance with the destiny. Bhagavan will make them act in accordance with our destiny. But we will be clinging more and more firmly to our being and thereby separating ourselves from this mind, speech, and body for doing the actions. So the free will is not to decide which action to do, but the free will is to keep turning within. Is that? No, but the freedom of will lies in. Vasanas are constantly rising. We are free either to be swayed by a particular vasana or not swayed by it. So we are constantly using our free will, even when our attention is going outwards, because vasanas are pulling us in many different directions. But we, 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 we select certain direction to go in, as it were. So we are we are all constantly using our freedom of will, but the correct use of our freedom of will is to not be, not allow ourselves to be swayed by any vishaya vasana, to allow ourselves to be swayed only by sat vasana. In other words, we, the correct use of our freedom of will is to cling firmly to self-attentiveness and thereby not allow ourselves to be swayed by any other vasana. Then whatever actions of mind, speech, and body are necessary for the unfoldment of our prarabdha, Bhagavan will make them act. So by clinging to self-attentiveness, we are surrendering our mind, speech, and body to him. He will make our mind, speech, and body do whatever they're meant to do, whether we surrender to him or not. But if we don't surrender to him, then we will also be doing action by mind, speech, and body under the sway of our vasanas. Is that clear? Yes, thank you. Right. <laughs> okay, so next question. Um, <clears throat> when I ask myself, who am I? or to whom this thought has arisen, or who is that is walking, there is no answer as such, but sometimes it leads to more mind chatter. Am I doing it correctly? Please advise, Michael. Thank you. Um, 
Bhagavan never, Bhagavan never asked us to ask ourselves, who am I, or to whom are these thoughts, or who is walking. He asked us to investigate. Investigating to whom are these thoughts means turning our attention away from the thoughts, back towards ourself, the one to whom the thoughts appear. So there's a difference between asking who am I on and or to whom are these thoughts and investigating who to whom are these thoughts. If we ask, we can go on asking these questions and thinking about this for that is just floating on the surface. That is not the path Bhagavan has taught us. Unfortunately, in many English books, it's recorded as if Bhagavan said, Ask yourself who am I? But that is mistranslation. What he said is, investigate who am I. By investigating means turning our attention back within. Supposing Bhagavan gives you a book and tells you investigate what's written in it, would you sit there with the book in your hand and your eyes closed, say, asking yourself, what is written in this book? What is written in this book? Obviously, no answer will come. But if you want to know what's written in the book, you have to open the book and see. If you open the book and see, oh, this is what's written in it. That is what is meant by investigating, looking within ourselves to see what we actually are. And we are not expecting an answer in words or thoughts. The answer to be, well, it's not even, there's an answer to a question. The, the, the investigation leads to a clarity, a clarity of self-awareness. We become aware of ourselves as we actually are. Now we're aware of ourselves as a person. I am this body. I'm such and such a person. The more we turn our attention within, the more we will become aware of ourselves as we actually are, which is not this or that, but just I am. I am I, as Bhagavan often said. What we actually are is only ourselves, not anything other than ourselves. That becomes clear to us to the extent to which we turn our attention back within. So self-investigation, as Bhagavan said, it means always keeping our mind fixed on ourself. That, that's all there is to self-investigation. It's not about asking questions, because asking questions is a mental activity, whereas turning our attention within to fix it upon ourself it's a cessation of mental activity, because to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, this mind or ego will thereby subside. So self-investigation is not an activity, it's a cessation of activity. Asking questions is obviously, a, whether, whether verbally or mentally, is obviously an action. Asking questions verbally is an action of speech, asking questions mentally is an action of mind. We action is doing. We cannot know what we cannot know our being by doing. In order to know our being, we need to just be. We need to subside back into our being and just be as we actually are. Just being means not rising as ego. And we can refrain from rising as ego only by clinging to our being and thereby subsiding back within. I hope that answers that question clearly. Right, we have three more questions. Okay. Um, a couple of them might be shortish. Okay. So, uh, so many spiritual teachers across traditions have shown great reverence for Bhagavan. Did Bhagavan himself have reverence for any particular teacher of his time, 
or of former times. Bhagavan had reverence for each and every one of us because Bhagavan is our own being. So Bhagavan's love is equal to all of us, both the good and the bad. Um, people sometimes, sometimes in Bhagavan, even in Bhagavan's presence, there was speculation. Devotees love to talk about others. I mean, it's a human mind to talk about others. So sometimes the discussion would start, is such and such a person in Yani? And um, it, sometimes people would even ask uh, uh, Bhagavan, Bhagavan, is, is, do you think, is such and such a person in Yani? Bhagavan would reply to such questions by saying, there is only one jnani, and you are that. That is, so long as we are looking outwards and seeing others, we are in a state of ignorance. So how can we see who is jnani and who is not jnani? So the jnana exists within our own heart. We can find jnana only in our own heart. If we cannot find jnana in our heart, how can we see it in anyone else? So to say this person is a jnani, this person is an agnani is pure imagination. Even to say Bhagavan is a jnani is ignorant because we, we, we're pointing out Bhagavan as a person. Bhagavan is jnana itself. That means he is not that person we, we, see, we see him to be. Of course, that person, through that person who appears in this dream of ours, the jnana is shining with its full clarity. That is, Bhagavan is jnana and the clarity of jnana and the infinite ocean of love in human form. We saw that manifested in that human form. We, I mean, not saw, we see that manifested in Bhagavan's human form. But that human form is not what he actually is. What he actually is, is, what he, is that jnana, that true jnana, that true awareness, pure awareness that is shining in our heart as I am. So all concern about whether this person or that person is a jnani is irrelevant. So Bhagavan will be respectful to all. Some people say, oh, if, if that's the case, then sometimes when people ask us about other teachings, sometimes it's necessary to point out the difference between what Bhagavan has taught us and what certain other people teach. Because many other people, they, though, though what they teach may seem to be somewhat similar to Bhagavan, there are differences. So some people, if we point out the differences, they'll say, how can you do this? Bhagavan was respectful for all. So how can you have so much disrespect by uh, criticizing others? <laughs> what I say is, I respect all. I, I'm happy to respect everyone. That doesn't necessarily mean that I have to agree with everything they teach. So we need, as far as teachings are concerned, we need to use our discrimination. And though Bhagavan generally didn't criticize other teachings, occasionally he would drop, he would occasionally, in appropriate circumstances, he would point out the uh, shortcomings in certain other teachings. Of course, his aim is not to, to repudiate other teachings, but when guiding us, sometimes he had to point out where certain other beliefs that we may hold, have, we may have picked up from other sources, how those 
beliefs are um, are not correct. So there's no wrong in discriminating between different teachings and uh, understanding the difference between what Bhagavan taught and what others taught. That doesn't mean just because we we say what this person is teaching is not what Bhagavan taught. That doesn't mean we're disrespecting that person. We respect the person. Just their teachings are something different. That is not that is not what Bhagavan taught us. So it's good to have respect for all people, for good people, for bad people, for, to have respect for everyone. Because the same Bhagavan is shining as I in the heart of each and every one of them. Yeah, I hope that answered that question adequately. Well, what is appropriate for one person may not be appropriate exactly, for Exactly, exactly. Why are there so many different spiritual teachings? They're there for a purpose, because Bhagavan's teachings are the ultimate teaching, but they're not going to appeal to everyone, they're not going to suit everyone. So, they, they, Bhagavan himself, when people asked about other teachings, sometimes he would encourage people to follow other paths, because he could see that they were not yet ready for this path. So he would encourage them in whatever path they were already following. So, they, and when Yogananda, that, um, that yogi who went to America and started the Self-Realization Fellowship and who wrote a book called Autobiography of a Yogi, he came to Bhagavan in the 1930s. It's recorded in talks. The one question he asked Bhagavan is, what teaching should be given for the uplift of the masses? Bhagavan simply replied, no teaching can be given en masse. Teaching should be according to the taught. So different teachings are suitable for peop different people at different stages of spiritual development. So Bhagavan did, did sometimes talk from the perspective of other teachings, but what, his, what, what Bhagavan's own teachings are, what his core teachings are, they are expressed in his own original writings. In Aranatya Stutipanchakam, Uludunapdu, Padeshundiya, Nana, Amabide, and so on. These are Bhagavan's own teachings. But he could also speak from the perspective of other teachings when it was suitable for particular individuals. Okay, so now we better move on. Yes. <laughs> they, they keep on popping up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I have a short question regarding karma. Can God make us not do some actions that, if we had done them, would have prevented our parabda from happening, which is not possible anyway? For example, think, yeah, okay. For example, if someone didn't do certain things that could have prevented a relationship from breaking up because the other person expected that other person to do those things, can God make us not do those actions for our pravda to unfold as it is supposed to be? <laughs> that is when Bhagavan says that in accordance with our destiny, he uh, uh, God or Guru will make us act. That means whatever actions are necessary or whatever actions are to be avoided, he will make us do accordingly. So if 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 a certain action would prevent the destiny taking place, we will not be able to do that action, even if we want to do that action. Something will stop us. 
maybe we want to give some good advice to someone, but somehow or other we're not able to give that advice. And so things, because we do, we're not able to give that advice, things take their own course. So what is, as, as Bhagavan says, what is to happen will happen, what is not to happen will not happen. And whatever we need to do or not do, in order to facilitate that, we'll be made to do. So destiny cannot be changed in any way whatsoever. What is destined to happen will happen. What we need to do in accordance with our destiny, he will make us do. Whatever we shouldn't do in accordance with our destiny, he will stop us doing. But that obviously doesn't mean that all our actions are actions that he makes us do, because we're also acting under the sway of our vasanas. Okay. Um, is it correct to believe that others have a subjective experience and a life of their own, separate from my own life, or is everyone else just a projection of my own mind as in a dream? For example, all the people who appear in my own mind as attending this meeting. When you're dreaming, there are many people in your dream. So long as you're dreaming, those other people seem to be just like you. That is, because you mistake yourself to be a person, you mistake every person to be like you. Because you as ego mistake yourself to be a person, you mistake every person to be an ego like you. So, so long as we are looking outwards, for all, uh, for all, in the realm of Viviharika Satya, that is in the transactional realm, we have to concede there are so many sentient beings. This world, we live in a world full of sentient beings, not only human beings, so many other sentient beings in different, I mean, dogs, cats, horses, cows, sheep, uh, elephants, fish. All these are, in our view, they all seem to be sentient. Uh, and, and so long as you're dreaming, for all practical purposes in your dream, yes, there are sentient people. If you go to someone in your dream and tell them you're just my mental projection, you'll get a punch in the face because nobody appreciates being told they're a mental projection. So, so long as we are looking outwards, there seem to be a multiplicity of jivas. However, Bhagavan taught us that there is actually only one jiva only one ego. And only when that one ego rises, do all the other egos seem to exist. So it's only in the view of the one, one ego, but there are many egos. Um, so, so long as we're looking outwards, we shouldn't think, I'm the only real person, these are all unreal, because the person we seem to be is as unreal as every other person. In a dream, who is experiencing the dream? Because we are in a dream, we experience ourselves as a person in that dream, that person seems to be experiencing the dream world. And so there seem to be so many other people also experiencing it. But actually, that person we take ourselves to be is not experiencing anything. We are experiencing it all. We as ego are, we as ego have projected the dream world and are experiencing it. 
why the person we seem to be seems to be experiencing it because we seem to be that person and because we seem to be that person every other person seems to be also experiencing so from a viviharika satya point from the on the level of viviharika satya that means on the level of transactional reality we should we should act in this world as if there are many jivas but for turning within we need to have the understanding but actually there is only one jiva all those many jivas appear only in in whose view in my view so who am i so we turn our attention back within so what bhagavan taught as some people say well then that's solipsism yes bhagavan did teach solipsism but a very very deep and refined solipsism because solipsism usually said that just one uh, the, 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 i'm the only real person everyone else is unreal but bhagavan distinguishes between ego and person but, but what is what is the one in whose view all this exists is ego not the person the person is jada but the person seems to be sentient because as ego we're aware of ourselves as i am this person because this person seems to be sentient every other person seems to be sentient so we should act in this world as if there are multiplicity of jivas we should go within investigating our source as if there's only one jiva when we investigate ourselves ultimately we will find there's no jiva at all jiva means ego that that is we seem to be ego only when we're looking outwards if we look within to see who is this ego we will find there's no ego at all so this ekajivavada or one ego this is we can say an interim teaching it's not the ultimate teaching the ultimate teaching is there's no ego at all when we look outwards there seem to be many egos in order to start us on this path we are told no you are the only ego investigate yourself and find out what you actually are if you investigate this one whom you are told is the only ego you find even this ego doesn't exist what actually exists is only pure awareness so it's for a practical purpose bhagavan taught us ekajivavada well ekajivavada means the 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 um the contention that there's only one jiva that is that's what bhagavan taught us but that is only for going within so long as we're looking outwards we should act in this world and we should consider others as in as sentient as we are jesus said give unto siva what is due unto siva and give unto god what is due exactly unto god. exactly exactly <laughs> Okay, we have one question if there's time. Yes, okay. Much thanks to dear Michael for biblical, Buddhist, and Hindu scriptural references pointing out how Bhagavan's teachings are in all traditions. But are there any further Quranic references besides those cited by Dr. Said? Yeah, he says, Dr. Haviz Said's mm -hmm. testimony of Islam in Bhagavan's life and teachings. Okay, I I I don't I'm not aware of that. Um I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. I, I'm not very familiar with the with the Quran. Definitely there are many uh close parallels between Bhagavan's teachings and many of the great Sufi saints. And those Sufi saints were following the Quran. So there has to be there has to be um 
there had to be uh, parallels there, but I, I'm not aware of them. I'm also not an expert in other, I'm not an expert in, in Buddhism, I'm not an expert even in Christianity. I know, though I was brought up as a Christian, my, I, my knowledge is fairly limited. And even Vedanta, to tell the truth, I, I haven't read all the Upanishads, I've not read, um, I probably have read the a not very good translation of the Bhagavad Gita, but I'm only familiar with a handful of verses in the Bhagavad Gita. Um, I, I've not, I've not, never read any Brahma Sutras, so I'm pretty ignorant of Vedanta. But what I do know is, but what Bhagavan has taught us is the essence of all of Vedanta, and Vedanta is the essence of all religion. So, if we, if we are familiar with Bhagavan's teachings, we know all that there is to know to follow this spiritual path. We don't need to know a lot about others. But Bhagavan has said, if there wasn't, if there weren't teachings in each religion that point our attention back within to investigate ourselves, that religion would not thrive in this world. It may thrive for a while, but it would die out. So those religions that are enduring, that have been here for hundreds or thousands of years, they are enduring because they have that, that at least some element in them, pointing out our attention back within, because that is the life of every religion turning within to know who we actually are. That is implied here or there in every religion in some form or other. But we are very fortunate to have Bhagavan's teaching where all of the essence of all this is expressed in a very explicit, refined and deep manner. If we have, if we've read and understand and are trying to practice Bhagavan's teachings, we don't even need the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita or anything else. Of course, when we read such things, it's interesting. We can see uh, how Bhagavan's teachings are the essence of all these things when we come across them, but they are not necessary. Bhagavan has given us the essence of the essence of the essence. So all we need to know is contained within Bhagavan's own original writings, if we are earnest in following this path. That doesn't mean we don't have respect for all others, all other traditions, they they have, I mean, in any religion, there are good things and bad things. I mean, but Bhagavan's path is not a religion. Bhagavan's path is a path of, of nivriti, of withdrawing and going back within. So it's the ultimate aim of all religions. whether the followers of those religions are willing to acknowledge it or not. Even most Vedantins are, are not ready to accept Advaita. Even most Advaitins probably would have difficulty accepting Bhagavan's teaching, because Bhagavan's teachings are, are a very pure and refined expression of Advaita. In Advaita, there are so many different levels of explanation are given to suit people at different levels. But by what Bhagavan teaches us is the very deepest, the ultimate. And of course, there'll be people who say, oh, he's a fanatic, he's, he's just fanatic. Let people say, from my limit, I mean, from my perspective, it is very, very clear what Bhagavan has taught us is the ultimate. I'm satisfied with that. And I, I'm convinced that all we need to do if we are drawn to Bhagavan's path 
is to follow his path. That is not to say everyone should be drawn to this path. People will, many, most people are not ready for this. But if we are ready for this, we are immensely fortunate to have, um, to have this great gift of divine grace in the form of Bhagavan and his teachings. So, Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Aranachala Ramanaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Aranachala Ramanaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arana Chalaramanaya.